Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Luis Braga from McMaster University talking about prenatal hydronephrosis. So, uh, good afternoon, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Um, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the University of California, San Francisco for this uh, wonderful opportunity and also uh, to congratulate them and especially Dr. Lindsay Hampson for uh, such a great initiative of uh, having this COVID uh, lecture series. So the topic today, um, we're gonna talk about prenatal hydronephrosis. Um, I'll try to limit my talk to 40 minutes, maximum 45 minutes, so Ding will cut me off so that we can have some time for questions. Um, it is a controversial topic, but um, um, I'll try to attain myself to some guidelines and what uh, Campbell's uh, textbook of urology and what you need to know uh, the basics for exams and at, at least for the, uh, the rotation in pediatric urology. So then uh, we'll talk about the background and definitions, indications for the workup of those uh, patients, management and some guideline reviews. Um, so two things are very important uh, to start is the, to differentiate between what is considered hydronephrosis and uh, congenital renal obstruction. So pediatricians, primary care physicians, they get this confused and I think it's important to have this clear in mind. So hydronephrosis is an ultrasound finding. So it just means that you have dilation of the renal collecting system. Uh, on the other hand, congenital renal obstruction means impaired urinary drainage, which if left uncorrected will limit the functional potential of that developing kidney. So therefore, in face of uh, obstruction, you have to probably indicate surgery to try to correct that uh, obstruction and then alleviate the kidney and allow the kidney to grow and develop. So, so far, uh, and that's the, 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 the difficult part in pediatric urology, no single test or investigation can prove renal obstruction. And we'll try to show you guys how we do it and uh, what um, strategies we use to try to make this diagnosis. So um, a little bit of epidemiology and background. So a UTD, urinary tract dilation, is found is very common. One of the most common um, findings uh, um, seen in conditions in pregnancies. So depending on where you read, it's up to one to 3% or even 5% of all pregnancies. Uh, in the US alone, it's responsible for almost 80,000 uh, children per year. Um, so this is typically seen in the second trimester. Um, and then because uh, at that point, uh, uh, you have some maternal indications for like checking for um, Down syndrome or any other uh, amniotic fluid uh, that it needs to be checked. And then at that point, they do an ultrasound and they will see it. But basically, most cases of antenatal hydronephrosis, they will resolve spontaneously, even though it's very prevalent, but the overall majority is physiologic and will resolve and cause no problem. But a wide range of uh, uh, uropathies are, are, are possible and we'll try to see, talk a little bit about them. Um, so it is important to identify the pathology prior, of course, to the development of UTI. Some conditions will have a higher risk of UTI than others development of like you no know, stones or symptoms and also of course renal dysfunction with um, worsening of the hydronephrosis and loss of kidney function. So when we look at the consensus, I apologize, when we look at the consensus statement uh, for antenatal hydro, uh, what we see here, what we see here is that the most common, as I mentioned, uh, the condition is called uh, transient or physiologic urinary tract dilation. And this can be seen in up to 50 to 70% of the cases. Um, after that, we have a more specifically what they call UPJ pattern dilation, or I like to call UPJ obstruction-like. It's like an obstruction, but we haven't defined yet because it's difficult. Sometimes you need zero ultrasounds or adrenal scan to define or more than one. So this can occur in 10 to up to 30%. Then the third most common cause is vasculitral reflux. Uh, which also varies and we will show you guys why this, this range can go from 10 to 40 percent. Uh, then more um, uh, uncommon is like a UVJ obstruction. So the whole urethra is dilated but there is like an area close to the bladder insertion. MCDK is in two to five percent. 
uh, the duplication anomalies, ectopic years, erythrocele, uh, up to five to seven percent, and then severe conditions such as prunibellian and uh, uh, posterior retral valves in maybe 0.5 percent of the cases. So, um, how do we know who to follow and who to treat? So there is a large variability in clinical practice patterns and recommendations, and then that's why it makes it a little bit difficult for pediatricians or uh, primary care physicians, and uh, also for the new uh, coming or incoming urology residents, for even fellows when they're starting, and then for nephrologists. So um, in the US, the evaluation of a child with antenatal hydronephrosis is estimated to cost around $100 million and uh, annually. And so this is a great um, a way or it's a, a very uh, large expenditure for the healthcare system in the US. So uh, one thing that it's important is that that's, that would be the ideal scenario if you would be able to detect that uh, condition prenatally and then correlate that with a need for surgical intervention postnatally or risk of urinary tract infection later on. So which conditions need to be followed and which not. And as we can see here, there is a poor correlation or evidence uh, with uh, the urological pathology based only on prenatal findings. So maybe this is caused by lack of uh, classification or uniformity as we will see it. There is inconsistent terminology between uh, what radiologists are using. We, we have come a long way and we are still making strides, but there is still, um, 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 how can I say, inconsistency. Uh, specialists, nephrologists are different from the urologists or pediatric urologists. Primary care physicians, pediatricians are different in the radiologists. And also one thing that is important that we have to take into account that even the position of the baby postnatally or prenatally uh, uh, changes and varies the degree of hydronephrosis because, you know, urinary tract dilation is a dynamic um, a condition. It fluctuates over time and with uh, the baby, hydration status, etc. So most uropathies represent a spectrum of severity. So it can go from very, very mild cases. And the typical uh, condition for that is posterior retro valves. You can have a baby with valves that are, you, you can see it at age seven, presents to your clinic with uh, urinary incontinence in, in the workup of bowel bladder dysfunction, and boom, you go there and you end up finding doing the workup that, that, that uh, a child had posterior retro valves. Or uh, it can even have a stillbirth because of very, very early development of oligohydraminus and then uh, pulmonary hypoplasia, and then th that baby doesn't make it. So this is a spectrum and we have to uh, take that into account. So let's talk, I think it's very important for uh, urology resident because I know in urology, especially in the US, and because you guys, the main uh, condition pathology that you see throughout residency and the main importance is cancer. So you guys get very, very familiar with CT scans and MRs, but I think in pediatric urology, uh, it's still uh, the, the main uh, driving test that we're gonna see it because it's less invasive, it's less invasive, it's not cost, um, um, uh, like not very cost expensive, and um, um, it's the most common one because it doesn't involve radiation, and also uh, there's no pain or IV related to that. So it's important for you guys to learn the grading systems and be very, very um, comfortable in making that diagnosis, not waiting and reading reports, because as you see, radiologists may classify or may uh, interpret something in a different way. So um, what about, uh, there are three main grading systems. There are more, but I'm gonna attain to those two, three, which are AP diameter, which is the anterior uh, posterior diameter of the renal pelvis. Uh, it's mainly, it was started in, the, in Europe and mainly developed by the British. Um, so the second one that I'm gonna talk about is the SFU, so Site for Fit Urology, which is mainly a North American uh, developing system. And the third one was a combination uh, of, uh, of um, those two, trying to um, uh, maybe overcome the limitations of the SFU. It's called urinary tract dilation and was, uh, uh, a result of a consensus meeting between all these specialties, radiologists, pediatricians, neonatologists, pediatric urologists, and uh, primary care physicians. So um, a couple of things here. So the AP diameter, the advantage is that it's objective, it's a simple system and measures the pelvis. Uh, the problem here is that we need to be consistent where uh, we're gonna measure that. And usually it's at the transverse plane and the mid level of the kidney, especially postnatally. So, um, a lot of papers have been published and shown a correlation between um, 
AP diameter with the severity of the condition and also the need for surgery. So one thing that it's interesting here and was very frustrating in the beginning when the prenatal ultrasound be became a reality in the 80s and the beginning of the 90s is that there is no relationship between uh, the severity or the, uh, the grade or the dilation of the anterior posterior diameter and uh, the grade of vasculitic reflux. So if you have a, a patient with a no hydroinfrosis or minimal hydro, that patient can have high-grade VOR, as opposed to some patients with a no hydroinfrosis, like I said, high-grade, and other patients with very, very uh, severe hydroinfrosis have no VOR whatsoever. So there is no correlation in that part. Uh, the second thing is because, again, of those nuances that I mentioned about where to measure is an operator-dependent test. So it's not like a CT scan or MR that you have those slices and you can have more reliable or predictable results. And uh, the important thing here is that we have to have in mind is that uh, in the third trimester, if it is uh, the dilatation of the AP diameter is greater than seven millimeters, according to, again, there is variability, but usually more than seven millimeters, some would say more than 10, this will uh, indicate or, or call for a postnatal evaluation and we'll discuss what needs to be done. So here you have a, a little bit of uh, uh, some papers or uh, authors have tried to do it. Between seven to nine millimeters is considered mild hydronephrosis. Nine to 15 millimeters in the third trimester, moderate and greater than 15 millimeters, severe hydronephrosis. Oh, yes. So one of the first ones that, uh, uh, it's, it's a, um, a seminal paper, I think important uh, uh, by Lee, uh, the group in Harvard. And then what they did was a, a meta-analysis in 2006, trying to do exactly that, trying to correlate uh, based on the degree of hydronephrosis between mild to severe with the uh, percentage or, uh, of postnatal pathology. So as you can see here, I'm gonna indicate for you guys, we just highlighted two of those, uh, patients with UPG obstruction. So again, not those who need surgery, but again, most of them uh, would require that, but this is um, uh, patients who have a little bit more than the transient hydronephrosis. So when you start with mild, um, the, the, the percentage is only 5%, but as you progress and with a degree of hydronephrosis and gets to severe, almost 50% of those patients will have a UPJ pathology postnatally. If this would, all those patients would translate into surgical intervention because they are really obstructed, that's another question and we'll see that later. Um, as I, I mentioned before, even with reflux, uh, you can see that the number uh, changed. So patients with very severe had um, uh, a percentage of postnatal uh, post pathology less than patients with moderate one that was 14 versus 8%. So there is no correlation between um, uh, the degree or, or the, the grade or degree of antenatal hydronephrosis or grade of hydronephrosis prenatally with the um, postnatal um, finding of vasculitic reflux. Um, post, po, uh, posterior retrovalves is interesting because you can see that, uh, again, um, and this would be a red flag, every patient that has um, uh, bilateral hydroerythronephrosis and this is severe, um, should be considered as having posterior retrovalves until proven otherwise. And that's why you see that the indications for VCUG later will be there for that population and they specifically to try to uh, negate and uh, obviate those, uh, that risk. So um, going back to this uh, uh, risks, so there I just decided to put two papers here uh, trying to use fetal hydronephrosis as a predictor of neonatal uh, urological outcomes. So um, this thing about need for surgery, um, you see that uh, it's not, I don't like the, the word, but I'm just uh, uh, reporting what the authors uh, described in their paper because the indication for surgery sometimes may be, uh, not that it's subjective, but may, but may vary from institution to institution or from uh, author to author. So, but what, what they look at, uh, the main thing here is that patients that had an AP diameter greater than 15 millimeters at the third trimester, they were more likely uh, to have a pyeloplasty as opposed to those that uh, had um, less than 10 millimeters. So that's, that's an important thing. And we'll see later on that the UTD classification define what is considered normal. And one thing that is important that uh, patients who have an AP diameter postnatally less than 10 millimeters, this is considered normal. So it's not uh, necessary to do any investigation for those patients. Um, in this case here, 
uh, these authors um, um, uh, decided to do exactly this, uh, trying to look at uh, which parameters or cutoffs would be uh, okay to just monitor patients and we could discharge them from care, uh, saving the healthcare system some uh, expensive investigations. So they, they did the opposite. When the AP diameter was less than 20 millimeters and with preserved differential renal function greater than 40 uh, percent. So what happened here? Uh, no patients had to uh, undergo pyeloplasty and they were followed with CR ultrasounds and, and showed improvement over the next two years. So let's go to the SFU grading system. And so in this regard, what I would like to talk to you about is because it's classic and you see this all the time. Um, we have SFU grade one, which is the separation or split of the renal uh, uh, sinus or pelvis. Then grade two, you have this uh, a separation of the, uh, of the pelvis plus the major calices are dilated. Grade three, uh, you have uh, what we call, um, again, dilatation of the minor calices but the difference here is that the parenchyma is preserved and grade four is exactly the same as grade three, but then you have parenchymal thinning. So uh, this case is probably, uh, most of them, I would, I would dare to say that they probably have some degree of obstruction because you already see a compromise of the parenchyma with thinning. So um, even though, as you see here, it's a five point grading system because I didn't mention here, but zero would be a normal. Um, it only takes into account the renal pelvis, dilated calices or uh, caliceal dilatation in the parenchyma. There are other parameters that could be used such as the ureters in the bladder that are not addressed here. So, but this one, because it uh, uh, has been going on or been used in pediatric urology literature for the past uh, 35 um, years, I believe, uh, 30, 30 years um, uh, almost. So what, what happened? Uh, this um, has shown to have a good correlation uh, between patients who have uh, decreased renal function in follow-up or patients who had to have surgery because of worsening of hydronephrosis or drop of renal or, uh, function. So uh, the issues here are the inherent uh, challenges uh, with the interrater reliability, especially between grades two and grade three, where, where the agreement is very poor. Uh, usually it's very easy to differentiate one and four because people know what is almost normal and what's uh, uh, very severe. So it's almost like uh, different shades of gray. You know what's white and what's black, but you know the gray, you, you, you can have more difficulty. So it's not that clear. So I just would like, because um, I, I, ha I have no idea how many residents are watching and then maybe you have all different levels and this is no shame but I think it's important and it, this is an excellent tool that I think all of you, I would encourage to use this. This was developed by Max Mazels in Chicago um, and Lurie Children's Hospital there. And he is a very a tech um, a person and has a lot of, uh, uh, what he developed was that he tried to create a teaching system for exactly uh, residents but also for pediatricians so that everybody could speak the same language and we try to overcome, we would try to overcome those shortcomings of the classifications and the subjectivity in interpreting these findings. So um, this is interactive and I recommend uh, you guys, had, this has been published in the Juno Pediatric Urologist free access and you can click and then the program will color the areas that you're supposed to identify. Sometimes the the black and white from ultrasound people don't have the trained eyes and they don't see well what is a dilated calyx, uh, what is a dilated major minor calyx. So I'll try to demonstrate for you. Here we have a sagittal view of a kidney and uh, this patient has uh, what we call grade three hydronephrosis. And the reason for that is because there is preservation of the renal parenchyma. Usually when the cortex or the parenchyma is less than five millimeters in thickness, then we start considering this uh, renal thing, uh, parenchymal thinning. So here they color the parenchyma, as you can see here clearly, uh, that it's very thick. Otherwise you'd be seeing a line. Um, um, so in this part, we, we can see the uh, um, minor calyx, calyces dilated in blue. Then when you come here, you see the major ones in this area, and then the renal pelvis. So, uh, this is very nice, uh, this program. I recommend all the residents to, to try to use it. And then at the end, the, the, he'll give you an exam with 30 cases that you can practice. And then you, you, you do your self-assessment because at the end, the program will teach you your, your score. 
and then you and also give you the answers why you classify or you grade someone as a two instead of a three or a four, etc. So this it's there for we participate with Dr. Mazel's uh, uh, in in the uh, validation or uh, for the SFU and the UTD classification. So. Uh, talking about the SFU grading system, so it's exactly what I was trying to, to talk about because, because it has been going on for longer and especially in North America, like Canada, in the US, we are very familiar with this classification. Uh, we use it and we have done studies trying to show um, correlation between uh, the applicability of the classification of the grading system with the outcomes. That's the whole purpose of having a classification is that we can actually counsel patients and we can publish results and people can interpret our results because they know what we're talking about. So in this paper here, what we saw is that uh, these this, uh, authors look at 71 cases over 13 years and patients only have SFU grade three or four. And what they saw is that uh, um, all patients, this study was done in Chicago, all patients with SFU grade three had preserved renal function. So uh, you don't need to uh, be too anxious and try to pull the trigger when you have a patient with grade three hydronephrosis because a, a, considerable, a considerable amount of patients will resolve spontaneously, uh, even if it takes longer. And why you should not stress too much because the renal function is stable. Um, as opposed to patients with grade four hydronephrosis, as you see here, um, 27 out of 38 had preserved function. But on the other hand, if you flip the way, 11 out of 38 um, had already loss of function. So that's the, the real um, uh, difficult part in this um, uh, type of uh, condition is to try to indicate surgery uh, at the right moment, which is that uh, when patients are obstructed but haven't started losing function yet, instead of uh, waiting too long until they lose, lose function and then you're intervening late. So um, what's important here is 21% of SFU grade two or grade three uh, require a pyeloplasty. And this can happen because some of these patients, they show deterioration over time or they develop symptoms that you have to do the operation uh, as opposed to 92% of patients with SFU grade four who underwent pyeloplasty. So it's not everybody who has grade four uh, needs surgery, but uh, what, uh, according to this paper, the overall majority need it. Uh, and um, some patients do show improvement, but uh, also in my experience, um, uh, at least 80% to 85% uh, they have um, had a pyeloplasty. Um, in um, uh, the other paper here on the side is a paper from Washington, uh, from Gil Rushton. And it's interesting that he showed the same thing, trying to stratify patients. And then they looked at 71 patients with grade three hydrogen, 54 with grade four hydronephrosis. And uh, as you can see, uh, only 15% of grade three needed surgery. So it's similar 15, 20%, and then here 70% in grade four. So uh, it is classic, I know, because they have a very, very well developed nuclear medicine group in, in Washington, and they have done many, many papers on this. So they're very, um, um, how can I say, invested in trying to look at better parameters to predict or try obstruction and therefore surgery. So I believe that that's why they rely and they have uh, uh, very accurate measurements and they are able to maybe then have a lower uh, percentage of um, patients with grade four needing pyeloplasty. In other centers where sometimes uh, the renal scan is not that precise and there is uh, uh, um, a lot of variability, then you have to rely more on uh, ultrasound parameters or other parameters. And then this may lead to an overindication or being more, um, how can I say, um, uh, inclined to do an operation with the fear of losing function over time. So um, as I mentioned before, the, uh, the third grading system is the UTD, uh, which means urinary tract dilation grading system, which is a combination of the SFU and, and uh, um, uh, with the AP diameter and trying to incorporate the ureter and the bladder abnormality. So you could have a whole picture of that patient to try to predict and, and stratify the patients in three risk groups. Uh, so the other uh, advantage is that uh, um, um, mainly the AP diameter that we see that can be used antilatally and postnatally, the SFU has most uh, of the time being used postnatally. So the UTD uh, now has a specific uh, 
um, uh, guidelines or at least recommendations for the prenatal um, part and also the postnatal assessment. So as you can see here, less than 10 millimeters, you know, um, a postnatal ultrasound is considered normal, normal. So that's very important because you see and you face several reports from radiologists uh, and pediatricians and your colleagues asking for um, uh, what should I do with this patient? The patient needs an ultrasound, a VCUG. Should I put the baby on antibiotics when the AP diameter is uh, nine millimeters, uh, eight, seven, etc.? Because this will still be considered hydronephrosis, especially with a uh, better um, um, uh, resolution of ultrasound machines. So it's important to know that less than 10 millimeters is normal, it's physiologic, and nothing needs to be done. Um, so these are uh, uh, the two uh, ways of seeing the UTD grading system, the prenatal presentation and the postnatal. Um, so in terms of the prenatal, I'm gonna attend, because I think that's the important part, especially in the third trimester. So after 28 weeks, anytime you have that NP diameter greater than 10 millimeters, see it, it consistent with the previous ones that we've seen, but uh, they provide here more information. So if you have this plus, uh, you have the calicio dilatation, or the parenchyma sting, or you have abnormal urethras and bladder and oligohydrometers. This means that this patient has a, um, an increased risk and then it has been labeled as UTD A2 and 3. Uh, postnatally, um, they define in 1, 2, and 3. So this is a bit different from the SFU, which would go from 1 to 4. But sometimes it's easy to make an association. I'll give you guys a rule of thumb. So the SFU 4 corresponds to UTD 3. The SFU3 corresponds to UTD3. Uh, oh, sorry, the, let's go again. Uh, SFU4 corresponds to UTD3. Uh, SFU3 corresponds to UTD2. Uh, and SFU1 and 2 will correspond to UTD1. Okay, so as you see here, why? Because we're talking about the same thing. When you have an AP diameter, uh, between 10 and 15 millimeters. So only central dilatation, as we saw in that diagram from Max Mazels, uh, just the uh, dilatation of the central dilatation of the pelvis, this is low risk and patients probably will not develop UTIs, they don't need antibiotics and they will not need any ultrasound or VCUG. So when you have uh, now the AP diameter greater than 15 millimeters, but you have a now uh, peripheral caliceal dilatation, so the calices are dilated, and here is the difference from the uh, SFU. If you have this or abnormal urethras, just by having abnormal urethras, you are already upgraded to UTD2, intermediate risk. And the UTD3, I mean, same thing, peripheral, caliceal dilatation, parenchymal thinning, but now we incorporate the bladder and um, the, the urethras. So how do we manage these children? And I think um, um, uh, the important thing is this. There is a likelihood, as I mentioned, of antenatal resolution of those um, uh, conditions. 80% um, resolution when it's between four to seven millimeters in the, third, uh, in the second trimester, and uh, less than 15% resolution when it's nine millimeters. So um, um, uh, again, those numbers are important. I think um, this I'm talking about uh, second trimester. So this will be a little bit more specific for uh, centers who have uh, what we call uh, prenatal clinics between uh, uh, urologists and nephrologists that they will do this follow-up uh, and counsel uh, the, the, the mothers or the pregnant women and uh, sometimes the obstetrician. So um, the third trimester ultrasound is the one that will determine the resolution they need for postnatal evaluation. So I think that's the number that is very important, greater than 10 millimeters in the third trimester and this sometimes will be an exam question. So in terms of um, uh, antenatal evaluation, um, um, we, we saw it here. So let's talk about the, the post-natal uh, uh, management. Uh, so patients, and here I apologize, but it's not my fault. I think some guidelines are there, they are outdated. And what has happened is that you probably have seen in your own institution, some of the staff in pediatric urology are not using or following these recommendations. Um, so here we have the following um, um, uh, criteria. Patients 
who have UTD uh, prenatally, A, A, uh, A2 or 3, what, what you have to do. You have to repeat that ultrasound every four weeks. Uh, at least that's what we do in our institution. And after birth, um, you have to order an ultrasound after 48 hours. A patient usually are not discharged home immediately. And normally all these patients are seen by either pediatric nephrology or urology. So those who have, in my institution, uh, we're not looking too much at, uh, at the low uh, risk group. And I think obstetricians, they are managing this. We're not uh, too much because they told us that it was not, uh, they, they are overwhelmed with those patients. So we could not provide, they should not, they, they, they thought was uh, not feasible to refer all these patients who have minimal dilatation at the second trimester to pediatric urology. So for us, our main uh, cutoff time is uh, 28 weeks. After the third trimester, if it is greater than 10 millimeters, so we're, we're kind of seeing those patients, which will be in keeping with the UTD increased risk A2 to 3. So uh, just for whenever we talk about that, I think uh, you guys know this, but it's always good to refresh. Uh, the amniotic fluid is primarily uh, from, from fetal year at 16 weeks of gestation, and then uh, fetus, um, uh, um, like you know, male fetus with severe um, bilateral hydroerythronephrosis and uh, oligohydraminous, they should be assumed to have posterior retrovalves or uh, maybe we should uh, say lower urinary tract obstruction because this could be caused by erythroatresia, a prune belly syndrome or something, even, even um, um, uh, uh, something different that would be causing some outlet obstruction in severe cases. Um, so it's important to know that if we're able to re restore that amniotic fluid, this will uh, lead to um, pulmonary, um, uh, the, the lungs maturation and then our development and, and therefore our renal development as well because we need uh, the kidneys or need the, the amniotic fluid uh, uh, to, to, to develop. So what else? Uh, Oligohydraminous after 27 weeks um, has favorable outcomes. Why is that? Because at that point the lungs are mature so these babies, what can happen is that they are delivered and they will, they will be able to breathe or they need ventilators, but they'll be in a, a intensive care unit and um, 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 uh, they will survive. So uh, therefore we need to be um, uh, careful and then very selective when we talk about antenatal intervention. So usually I uh, speaking, uh, this was something that was very popular during uh, um, the late 90s and, and 2000 and then has dropped a little bit in, in popularity because some of these interventions are associated with morbidity, not only for the, uh, 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 the, the mother, but also for the fetus. So usually it should be considered when indicated in the early second trimester. Um, um, according to some textbooks, this uh, uh, overall need of one in 60,000. It, it depends. I think it depends how uh, well uh, and developed and trained is your um, high-risk obstetrics group. Um, and then th this varies from institution to institution. So it's very important to look at these findings, which are the dilated bladder, uh, the presence of uh, hyperechogenicity or uh, cortical cysts in the parenchyma and uh, uh, the cortical medullary differentiating if it's very thin or not. So, um, um, whenever we suspect of a luteal, a lower urinary tract obstruction, so then usually these patients have to be uh, assessed by a multidisciplinary team. And then usually we're dealing with either Brunibelli syndrome, urethroatresion and valves. And then um, the, if indicated, uh, there are some parameters. I think this is beyond the scope of this talk, but again, uh, the two main interventions will be, uh, which is at least in my institution, uh, the vasoamniotic shunt, and then especially in places like uh, in California that you guys are very advanced, and then also in Boston and other centers, you can do uh, laser ablation and fetal cystoscopy. So they do fetal surgery in uh, Philadelphia and trying to address these issues. From a urological perspective, what is important, and sometimes you see this in exams, is that a fetal intervention will improve the perinatal survival, and, um, but uh, at an expense of 40%, 34% of risk of complication, as I mentioned, and depending on the institution and papers, this can be less or more. Uh, no long-term impact on renal uh, function so far, and we have had some uh, real nice uh, randomized studies that are 
um, have shown that so far. So let's talk about postnatal evaluation. So it's important to do a clinical exam. Uh, the first thing that is gonna be ordered again, because it's non-invasive, it's ready available, it's right there, it's a renal bladder ultrasound can be done at any time of the day or night. Uh, later on, we'll talk about the indications for VCUG that have been changing. Uh, you may or may not need to do a renal scan in the first uh, few weeks, uh, like um, usually four to six weeks. And those other tests is only in uh, complex situations and uh, um, some of them, they're like, you know, almost uh, uh, never being used anymore. So what, what, what is the, uh, the first thing that it's important is the timing of the first uh, renal bladder ultrasound. And then I usually, um, it's controversial, but again, one thing is for sure, most uh, uh, institutions recommend uh, waiting 48 hours uh, before getting the first renal bladder ultrasound. Why is that? Because there is a tendency to underestimate the hydronephrosis because of the initial dehydration and the uh, oliguria of the fetus or the baby or the intravascular depletion. So sometimes you can have a patient with uh, even grade three or four hydro that it shows that it's grade one or two and then you may be uh, placed in a, in a path of follow-up and management that is different than what you used to do it. Of course, this, this um, is not valid for those patients that have high uh, suspicion of posterior retro valves. Then the ultrasound is done on the first day. Uh, obviously can be repeated later if needed. Um, but most of the time those babies have other conditions that will require that they be admitted to NICU because of uh, uh, electrolyte imbalances or they have um, a really severe hydroerythronephrosis, they are not voiding properly, they'll require a catheter, etc. So uh, there is an agreement that patients who have SFU grade three and four require more frequent, um, require more frequent postnatal ultrasound than those with grade one and two. So this is actually, um, in our institution, we follow patients with grade three and four at least uh, uh, three to four uh, times in the first year, every three months, as opposed to those with grade one and two that we usually get one ultrasound and then we discharge them because most of these patients have physiologic hydronephrosis, which uh, as we have shown in a few studies, resolves spontaneously. So um, uh, that, that's important to note because depending on the severity, the approach and the management will be different. Um, uh, the VCUG. So um, you see that uh, most of the guidelines is still there. Uh, some of them will recommend uh, ordering VCUGs. So just for the residents to give them a, some historical perspective, when I start training uh, all the patients, and this was like um, 20 years ago, all the patients would require VCUG with prenatal hydronephrosis. And then this of course has changed. Um, the reason to do a VCUG is because in the past we are very concerned about uh, uh, or trying to identify patients with vascular urethral reflux because we had to prevent uh, those patients from getting an infection to try to save them from having renal scarring and uh, uh, damaging those kidneys. We know that this is not uh, um, how it occurs and therefore um, the, the necessity of trying to identify those patients who have vascular urethral reflux has uh, decreased substantially. So, but it's always important if you do a VCUG, try to look at other um, uh, aspects as well, such as the spine, uh, to see if your patient has uh, uh, the vertebrae are okay, like, you know, the sacrum, uh, if it has a spinal bifida or something like that, constipation, stones, etc. And uh, also it's very important to always use a feeding tube and not a balloon catheter because this can, can uh, um, hinder the, the test. Um, you can actually uh, get some urine uh, when you're doing the test because they're catheterizing the baby. I usually try to fill with gravity until the first void and try not to overestimate. So try to calculate the capacity of the baby uh, because you know you can have some false positive results. And um, always waiting and uh, sometimes if you can get it, a delayed image because you can assess for some UPG obstruction or UVG obstruction. So as you mentioned, there is a complex relationship uh, or a lack of a relationship, I would say, between vascular urethral reflux and antenatal hydro. Uh, so some studies have shown this to be 4 to 40%. Um, because again, it doesn't depend. People will order. Uh, if you have guidelines that have recommended everybody with high grade uh, requiring vascular urethral reflux, then your incidence of uh, VUR may be different uh, than if you are ordering VCUG for all patients with hydro or, or, or never. So um, I put this sad face here because even now, 
um, as according to some guidelines, if you used to have severe hydronephrosis grade three and four or UTD three, this was a, a mandatory to have avoiding cystic retrograms. And I think uh, what is mainly most practitioners are doing is trying to be selective uh, based on if you have isolated hydronephrosis versus hydroerythronephrosis. So if the ureter is dilated and you have bladder abnormalities, by all means, uh, you can uh, order your VCUG. But if you have just simple isolated hydronephrosis, we have shown um, in the studies like that, the, uh, the incidence of the yield of vascular urethral reflux will be 10 to 11%. And most of that, uh, those cases will be low grade. So therefore, in our institution, we're not ordering VCUG in those cases anymore. Um, uh, secondly, uh, once you do that and you find no VUR and you have a patient with severe hydro, the next test that needs to be ordered is a, is a, a, a renal scan. And this can be done either with the TPA or MAG3. The main difference is that the MAG3 has uh, extracts more um, of the tracer in the proximal tubules than, than, than the DTPA. Uh, the problem with MAG3 is that the, the images are not well defined, but it does show um, the differential renal function and can assess the drainage of the kidney. And some um, textbooks will consider uh, 20, 30 minutes as being um, an indication for uh, or a sign of obstruction. We know that this is not uh, uh, like pathognomonic and it has to be interpreted with a lot of caution. Uh, other people like to look at the curves to see if a patient has an ascending or a plateau curve, this actually means obstruction. Others like to look at the count, how many uh, uh, particles are counted, and then they do this to see if there is a subtraction. And um, it's a test that has several variables. I have to be a well-tempered renogram with a catheter, and uh, the Lasix has to be ad administered uh, usually at 20 minutes. Um, so for patients to see what's going to happen with the drainage, and then uh, several other factors, uh, hydration status, the function of the kidney, et cetera, et cetera. So I try to mention this in the protocols that uh, there is a lot of variability. And that's why when you're trying to use this sole criteria to indicate surgery may be difficult because uh, you can have different results based on different institutions and protocols. Uh, but basically the, the criteria for intervention solely based on renal scan would be a differential renal function less than 40%, at half time greater than 30 minutes and significant retention of delayed imaging. Sometimes you have a no drainage or an infinite curve going up. So that's a pretty uh, convincing that it's obstructed. Patients with low grade hydronephrosis, that's an important thing. If you're in doubt who, which patients need this test, but at least we know that uh, some do not need it. And if they have grade one or two or UTD one, they do not need to be investigated and no renal scan. Um, all those tests, I think we can just scan, but sometimes, especially in the US, we're using more and more um, uh, what we call magnetic resonance, um, uh, the MRU, which is uh, you can give the uh, detailed image of the anatomy and also uh, depending on the protocol, you can assess the function the way they, 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 they perform the test. So uh, what about antibiotic prophylaxis? So this is another controversial topic. So historically, antibiotic prophylaxis was given empirically for all babies with prenatal hydro in the first uh, 18 to two years of life. And then, but this was based on low level of evidence and then variability uh, from practice patterns and recommendations. So right now, um, um, and this has been evolving over the past 10 to 15 years, what has, have we tried to do? We we'll try to identify subpopulations that have a higher risk of UTI and then, or renal deterioration, and therefore uh, we thought that those patients would need or benefit from the antibiotics. Uh, so the, the role of uh, a cap that we call continuous antibiotic prophylaxis is still controversial. Um, and then uh, some guidelines have a low threshold of uh, indication or not. So uh, the most common ones would be amoxicillin, uh, cephalexin, and trimetropin here. Important that in the US it comes with sulfur, so Bactrim cannot be given to those babies in the first three months because of the risk of kernicterus. So that's why sometimes, at least in Canada, we can manipulate just the, the TMP component. Um, so we, we, we publish or review the literature about the, this uh, issue of uh, antibiotic prophylaxis for patients with prenatal hydro. And we, we saw this, that uh, uh, the rate of uh, UTI was four times higher in patients with high grade versus low grade. And um, um, in terms of uh, numbers, or uh, was around 14% in those who had uh, low grade versus almost 30% in those with high grade hydronephrosis. One thing that was interesting is that uh, 
uh, when we just pulled patients that had low-grade hydro, giving antibiotics or no antibiotics, the, the rate of UTI was the same. Therefore, uh, we think that this was a, a, that was an important contribution, is that, okay, for low-grade hydro, patients do not need antibiotics. We need to see if everybody who has high grade needs it. And uh, um, as uh, studies have been, um, uh, been reported and published, we have seen that even for the high grade population, not everybody needs, uh, probably only those who have dilated ureters, those with isolated hydronephrosis, the UTI rate is low, usually less than 5% according to even multi-center uh, series. So we reviewed and, and updated that systematic review a few years back and it showed similar results saying that uh, patients with a severe degree of dilatation had a higher risk of UTI, especially those with a primary obstructed megaureter. So um, how do we recommend, uh, what, what do we suggest or recommend for the time and frequency of monitoring? So this is again uh, based on the consensus statement that I'm trying to get, get, uh, tell you. So SFU grade zero, you can forget, patients can be discharged, they will be asymptomatic, risk is very low, no need to, to follow up. Uh, grade one or two, uh, some people repeat an ultrasound in the first six months, but after that, especially if the AP diameter is less than 10, they can be discharged and, and don't need to see annually. Uh, those who need monitoring are those with grade three and four or UTD risk group three. So again, ultrasound after two days of life, and then after that, you can monitor uh, depend on the severity. Some of those patients, if they have dilated ureters and blood abnormalities, need VCUG. And if the VCUG does not show vascular retro reflux, then a renal scan is indicated to see if, uh, 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 look at the renal function, differential renal function, and if there is any indication that a suspicion of obstruction based on the drainage time and the curves. So we try to look at uh, some of these things about surveillance. So we look at, uh, um, the classifications, um, you know, um, SFU and UTD categories. And as you can see here, over two years follow-up, uh, follow what you see here is that there is um, um, resolution of hydronephrosis. Grade one resolves in 90%, grade two in 73%, 50% grade three and only 30%, 35% in grade four. So uh, the UTD uh, was followed similar pattern of resolution, but the numbers were a bit different because of uh, not everybody, uh, when they have dilated ureters, this upgrade their category to um, 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 UTD2, even though if the, uh, you can have just a dilated uh, renal pelvis and not uh, uh, grade two years in the SFU. So that's why uh, the numbers don't match completely because of that uh, um, uh, small variation between the two, two classifications. So uh, others have shown, this is a nice study done by the group uh, um, uh, in Virginia, led by uh, Tony Herden. And then uh, this is the registry of uh, hydrogen flows that we also are a part of it. And then uh, uh, this group showed that, uh, um, again, 100% of patients with SFU grade one and 90% of grade two resolve completely. So the message for the residents is this, that patients with UTD grade one and SFU grade one and two, these are not considered pathological conditions. These are uh, uh, physiologic uh, patients that uh, will not have a high risk of UTI. They will resolve spontaneously and can be discharged and they only need to be followed by ultrasounds every six months. Um, in terms of surgical intervention, just a quick note uh, that is important. I think these are uh, the strong uh, indications with uh, loss of function, more than uh, 5% or a differential renal function less than 40, worsening of the drainage time, so you do repeat scans, uh, worsening of hydronephrosis. Every time you do a PDIM, it's getting bigger, SFU is getting worse, or the parenchyma is getting thinner. And then of course, if they have flank pain, vomiting, or uh, I, in my indications, I think UTI comes here, but because those uh, patients are very seldom developed urinary tract infection. So I think that's not a important uh, um, uh, factor for indication of pyeloplasty. Um, so this is the recommendation from uh, the consensus statement uh, on the UTD classification. Uh, and you can see here, I mentioned a lot of things are written here as discretion of the clinician. So I would argue that this now we need to get an update. And I think uh, Tony Hergen, myself and others, we are working on that. I think this is going to be an X and these patients in the new update will come that uh, this does not need to be followed, does not need any, any 
any um, can be discharged to be seen by a family doctor or a general practitioner, but they do not require specialists and these patients uh, will do well because this is physiologic. I think the main issue is then patients with UTD HAT2, the intermediate risk. I think here the VCUG, I think the main issue is that if you have isolated hydronephrosis, no VCUG, maybe dilated ureters, yes for VCUG, antibiotic prophylaxis, again, the same thing, not for those with isolated hydro, maybe for those who have um, dilated ureters because their risk has been shown in papers to be higher. And paper, patients with grade three, those are the ones that get VCUG and antibiotic until we have a final diagnosis. So this is a, um, I, I, it's a passionate topic for me, so I think I have spoken too much, but I would like to, to finish uh, showing like a, a, this is an algorithm that I was published in the Canadian uh, Journal of Urology uh, from the guidelines uh, with our colleagues from Quebec. So that's how we do it. I think we change each service has a little bit of a different thing, but again, uh, following those recommendations, if the APDIM is greater than 15 millimeters in the third trimester, so this puts you in the uh, high risk or severe hydro category or SFU uh, grade two and three, the first one. So you have an ultrasound um, um, in the first two weeks of life. And then those babies are on antibiotics, see? But I think it depends. I don't use antibiotics anymore, only when the, the ureters are dilated. So you do uh, um, uh, uh, repeat this, this ultrasound if it shows um, SFU grade one. So then uh, what happened? So these patients get one ultrasound and can be discharged. If it's grade three and four, these groups here, according to these guidelines, they're still doing VCUG. And then VUR, you manage vascular retro reflux, no VUR, then you have the LASIK renal scan, and then you can go from there because you're trying to decide if that patient with a UPJ or like who needs surgery or not. Um, so I just put it here for you guys to illustrate a clinical scenario that you see very quickly. A 40-day-old boy that I consulted NICU for hydronephrosis on the left side, prenatal diagnosed, very healthy. So that's the ultrasound. So this, you see it. So like right this, what you see, it's a bare pulse sign. Uh, parenchyma is thin because you don't see that uh, as we shown in the, in the algorithm or the, the, that uh, exercise. And then you see the, whenever you see the peripheral calyces communicate with the central cavity, then this means that this is hydronephrosis. If you have independent cysts that they don't, do not communicate, this could be a multicystic dysplastic kidney. So this is a patient with a grade four hydronephrosis according to the SFU or a UTDP3. So you don't see any ureter. So this is more in keeping with a UPJ obstruction. So the questions in exam will be what's the next step? So some people, um, according to guidelines, may still order VCUG in those cases is not wrong. Uh, the chance of finding associated VUR in those cases would be around 10%, uh, but most of the time, uh, the next test will be a MAG3 renal scan, and then you can manage those patients either surgically or not surgically, depending on your institution protocol. Uh, in our case, we, we felt that that patient, after having two ultrasounds and the renal scan that showed an obstructive curve, had this investigation, which shows um, we like to do a, a retrograde pilogram before doing the pyeloplast at the same time. We see again the same image, and then you see the uh, narrowing of the UPJ with this uh, a, a pathological ureter, and then this is a classic finding of uh, UPJ obstruction. So we did a, a the baby was like four months old, and we see that narrowing part and plus a kink, and this was uh, excised and then a pyeloplasty performed, and the patient did well. So I think um, uh, due to the fact that um, uh, this is a passionate topic for me. I think I would like again to thank, uh, I would like to thank the um, uh, UCSF for the great opportunity to present to the residents and I'm open for questions uh, um, because this is a very extensive topic that uh, one hour, 50 minutes is hard to, to cover. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.com dot edu